Hey everybody, this is Morgan Spurlock. That's right, that ugly guy who makes movies is now the ugly guy who's making a brand new podcast called Week in the Knees. Your number one source for the weekly recap of everything in the news, pop culture, science, politics, religion, you name it. If it's worthy of being in the news, it's going to be on Week in the Knees. Not only are we going to tell you the stories that gobbled up the news every single day, we're going to tell you the ones that were lost because of those stories. Subscribe to Week in the Knees, available on demand through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and so many more. Or subscribe today. Hey everybody, quick note before we begin, we have a very special extra episode of a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. Later this week, we'll be joined by returning guest Damon Lindelof, co-creator of such incredible shows as The Leftovers and Lost. He will be here to talk about his thoughts on the season and perhaps offer some notions about where it's all going. Check out for that later this week. Let's get started. Twin Peaks, part 15. Here we go. Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. Should we start with uh, Mr. C going to the Dutchman? I, I feel like in, in, in some respects, this was both a helpful bit of scene setting for the Twin Peaks cosmology insofar as it folded together some different things we've seen uh, with, with some new things that just kind of, you know, helped to confuse us even more. But it was also just very, very scary in the classic industrial hum on the background during a racer head, kind of David Lynch way. Um, Jeff, uh, uh, what did you think as Mr. Cooper? I, we, we, I could tell I was already excited when Mr. C was sort of doing one of those like you know lost highway dark drives with just the spotlight of his car sort of shining forward i was already kind of like okay like this is great this is almost kind of like the twin peaks version of the slow drum roll before you get somewhere exciting and then when we saw that it was indeed the convenience store which we all know and love from part eight <laughs> you could you could feel something big was going to happen but how did you kind of feel that there's just this wonderful sense of the kind of slow build during his journey through this sort of mythic space. I think you introduced it really well. And I want to just sort of set the stage maybe a little bit more. We're going to dig into Nadine, Ed, and Norma in just a little bit. But all of that stuff with those three characters actually began the episode. And so the episode begins on this really happy, romantic note people coming together and giving the audience things that you you really want to see, right? We all wanted to see Norma and Ed get together uh, with Nadine at peace about it in some and in, in as much as she can be. And the first like 5 to 7 minutes of that episode gave us all of that, it, it kind of teased us a little bit. It withheld a little bit. It made you kind of faked out. It made you think that maybe you, you weren't going to get that. And then, the, then we did get it. And it was a marriage proposal. It was great. And you had that great Otis Redding song, I've Been Loving You a Long Time. Uh, I think I might be getting the title wrong all of a sudden. But it was just this really transcendent, romantic moment. And the feeling that I got coming out of that scene was, yes. This is an episode that's going to give us wild romantic satisfactions. We're going to go places. Things are going to advance. We're going to get answers and, and all of that. And 
there was a lot of amazing things in this episode, but it definitely sets you up. So we, we, we go out of that happy, happy place into a lost highway into darkness with Mr. C, who's going to take us into the convenience store in this mythic, spectral, roaming, like headquarters of, of evil or, or whatever the, the, the woodsmen really represent. And that momentum, that feeling that I got from the opening sequence actually carries me into this because even though that tonally, it's like the exact opposite, right? I mean, it's now it's dark. Things are going to get dark. I had suddenly like wild expectations for what we were going to get from this scene. And I want to be clear it was mind-blowing. It was great in that sort of nightmare, David Lynch, surreal way. But it was also marked by giving you some insights, but like also withholding a lot of information, giving you more riddles and mysteries and making you wait and sending you back out onto the journey. And actually, like I kind of felt like this scene set the tone more for the rest of the episode than the romance of the opening sequence. But I just, I, I, I just wanted to set that stage because like when we that, that's how I was feeling entering into this whole sequence of like what are we going to see and what are the amazing answers that we're going to get um, what is the revelation that awaits and uh, it wasn't exactly that but it was mind-blowing in its own way so yeah words kind of fail me in a way in, in an appropriate way for this scene that is driven so much by by images and by sound so Mr. C arrives at the convenience store. Are we in New Mexico? Are we in the place where that convenience store originally was before it got irradiated by the atomic bomb blast and became sort of a radioactive headquarters for woodsmen from another dimension, these threshold guardians that are either protecting some great good or some great evil or both? What are these things? He arrives at the convenience store. He is met on the street, um, on the highway, by a woodsman who they seem to recognize each other. They understand maybe what intuitively what the other wants. They walk up this stairwell. They begin to flicker. Uh, interesting, you look at that stairwell as it goes up the side of the building. There is no door up there, it looks like, in this solid brick building. Um, they flicker and they pass out of existence um, or pass out of this plane of reality, if you will. Um, interesting, the way they flickered and the way they disappeared, totally similar to the way that Agent Cooper flickered and disappeared in the very first scene of the season when we got that moment where Agent Cooper is having a meeting with the fireman and he's getting a download of clues from the fireman. And then after he says, I understand, um, he flickers and fades um, in sort of this weird abstract way and this crackle of electricity, electricity factoring into, you know, to this episode in particular. So I, I, interesting symmetries there. And I'm wondering if visually that's a way to cue us to the fact that I think that we might be revisiting that moment with Agent Cooper and the firemen sometime very soon. So uh, Mr. C is taken into this room. The woodsman leads him to a room. They encounter another woodsman who is sitting in a chair. It either looks like that he has just had a meal of 
some animal that he ate out in the woods because his face is all drippy with dark ooze. Or maybe he was just drinking a gallon of scorched engine oil. I I, I don't know, but he's a messy eater. It was all over his face, all over his shirt. And they have an interaction um, in which he declares that he wants to see Agent Philip Jeffries. And the the seated woodsman cranks this machine that's next to him or flips a lever. And if you look at the machine, there's all sorts of gadgets and gizmos. To be honest with you, it kind of reminded me of like the sort of like woodsman uh, electric punk version of all of the recording equipment in that Manhattan apartment where the box was. But if you kind of look inside one of them, you see an old record player with a disc on it. And I kind of wondered if, you know, the platter's my prayer is, 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 is playing in some abstract way permanently within this land. But he flips this switch and this light, this electricity just explodes within the room And I thought of you, Darren, in particular, because we see an image like edited within this electrical flash. And it's uh, the the red tuxedoed jumping man from Twin Peaks Firewalk with me in that sort of dream sequence, which we, we met Philip Jeffries for the first time. Uh, when he has that mysterious moment when he enters the FBI Philadelphia office and he relays a story of visiting, uh, uh, of infiltrating one of the meetings of the Black Lodge entities and uh, and uh, in, in, a, in an apartment above a convenience store. And there was this one character in that meeting in particular who wore this mask, a white mask with a long pointy nose. He's jumping up and down wearing a red tux. Did, and did you happen to see the face, though, that was superimposed upon the mask in this episode, Darren? Okay, well, you're bringing up something that I wasn't sure if I should bring up because, like, th- this could just be a totally baseless theory. But I- in looking it up, the actor credited as that character who goes by the name Jumping Man is, remarkably enough, the same actor, Carlton Lee Russell, who played that character in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. He's the most fascinating man in the world right now. That's like two of his like like biggest roles on his IMDb besides his stunt work. But it, it kind of looked to me like the face being superimposed over him was the face of Kyle McLaughlin. Is that right? Or have, have you studied it uh, closer, Jeff? I'm not alone in saying this because I got people who tweeted this at me um, late last night. Um, it looks to me like the face of Sarah Palmer. Oh, so, whoa, crazy. Oh, my God. What should we interpret from that? I wonder if this means, well, okay, this this brings up the great thing about this scene is it simultaneously brings together so much stuff, but in a way that seems specifically designed to make the stuff you even kind of thought you had a handle on more confusing. Like, like I, I thought I kind of had a handle on Sarah Palmer being somehow possessed, but I, I definitely don't know how that means her face winds up superimposed over the jumping man whose arrival seems to also imply the arrival in this dimension of some other corner of the Dutchman. Do you have any kind of like uh, theories that you've developed off of that? Other than I think that maybe um, the fact that Sarah Palmer's face is superimposed on this Black Lodge entity kind of, to me, evokes sort of like the giddy, you know, amoral or evil chaos of the Black Lodge. 
it might confirm that she is for certain under the influence of Black Lodge spirits. Um, an interesting other connection to the Palmer household in general in this whole scene is that uh, you might have noticed very conspicuously the spotted wallpaper on the walls of the convenience store. And that is the same. So in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, you might remember that weird scene in which Laura Palmer received the gift of a painting from Mrs. Chalfont, I believe, the grandmother. And she put that painting on the wall and it's a it's it, the wall is a a portrait of like a room with a door in the deep background of the painting and there's all this wallpaper on, on that wall and Laura has this weird vision dream she uh like actual supernatural experience in which she enters into the painting into this room into this house and walks through some corridors and enters into the Red Room of the Black Lodge. And I believe it's that moment where she sees in her mind's eye the man from the other place offering her the ring, going with this ring I thee wed, which is, you know, interesting in, a, in an episode in which, uh, you know, there was a marriage proposal. But um, that wallpaper is on that wall. So it's a very strange, surreal scene. And there are other things in this larger room of the convenience store, um, this apartment above the convenience store, that sort of evoked the Palmer household, but clearly was not the Palmer household, like another stairwell leading upstairs. I just kind of wondered if all of these sort of visual clues and illusions are meant to suggest that, yes, these Black Lodge spirits, these woodsmen people have made an incursion into the the Palmer household and have claimed uh, Sarah Palmer for herself in in, in some way. Yeah, I mean, like, it it does sort of make you wonder the mechanics of the Dutchman's of the apartment above the convenience store, whatever you want to call it, it actually seems plausible to me that those might be two somewhat different places. I kind of interpreted that first woodsman when he kind of turned on that device you were talking about. It was unclear to me if he was opening a doorway or if he was somehow like calling out of another dimension the space that Mr. C was about to walk through. But I'm very intrigued by the idea that you know, the pain and sorrow that emanates out of the Palmer household, that somehow like what happened within there is so totally a feast for these entities. You know, you sort of, you imagine that somehow there is enough cosmic pain and sorrow that came out of the events there that a whole, uh, a whole coterie of Black Lodge denizens are just sort of feasting off of it even now, all those years later. It makes me wonder if the woodsmen were trying to communicate to him that that's where they put Bob. Mm-hmm. You know, they took Bob out of Mr. Cooper oh. and uh, Mr. C., and maybe that jumping man was meant to sort of, with, with, with Sarah Palmer's face imposed on it, was supposed to, this is, of course, assuming that was indeed Sarah Palmer's face, but maybe there, maybe the darkness that's within Sarah Palmer is actually the spirit of Bob. Regardless, here's, you just were trying to suggest that maybe we went to different places, that maybe the convenience store is different from the Dutchman's. And my brain, that's the idea that was I was catching up to. So now I'm taken with the notion that Mr. C conjured 
this place, the convenience store, because it represents some kind of like portal to many different realms and many different dimensions, and that the woodsmen in their positions as threshold guardians, which I kind of like this idea that, you know, that, that they they escorted him or or transported him or 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 guided him to a separate place that is known as the Dutchman's. Was that the, the idea that you were going for? It seemed to me, and, and this is going to be a, a very shakily put together description, it seemed to me that he sort of, that Mr. C either knew about or managed to conjure up this convenience store, which is itself sort of a gateway. And what that woodsman was doing was almost kind of like calling up this other space space, you know, as a connection to this space that itself is somewhat fuzzy. Um, it's almost kind of like if uh, uh, we've talked a lot, Jeff, and spared our listeners mostly our theories about how this season connects to Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, but it was almost as if, like, two different versions of Danny the Street, this kind of teleporting, living, um, sentient actual space it was almost as if two of those were suddenly like briefly meeting and the corridor that mr c walked down with the woodsman which in a incredible shot in a sequence full of incredible shots you kind of saw this dark corridor with a light at the end of it and as they were walking you sort of saw fade over them this image of a forest which they seemed to be moving through simultaneously it was kind of my interpretation that it was like okay like you have now left the threshold this particular gateway perhaps there are many convenience stores through which you can enter this other space which again could be the Dutchman's could be the apartment above the convenience store perhaps both perhaps neither but I I was just so taken and and I'm sure many people were by the fact that you kind of thought you were now inside of a place and it was right then that Mr. C suddenly walked outside into what seemed to be a courtyard I I just thought that the sort of physical complexity of this space you know it sort of reminded me of the maps people have made of the interior of the hotel in the shining this sense that like there are insides and outsides where there shouldn't be so but uh now that i've laid out my unhelpful five-dimensional graph of what i think was happening there was that sort of what you were thinking or you know where where is mr c kind of walking to as he gets to that it looked to me like a motel courtyard but i guess it could also be just an apartment a, a, it could be just the apartment on the rooftop. <laughs> I love that you pointed out that uh, amazing shot in which they're walking through that long, dark room or corridor, and you see superimposed, uh, you know, a forest and, and, and trees. And this was definitely an episode that <laughs> made you scared of the forest because <laughs> it just it, it turned like you know trees into like nightmarish, scary, like sentient beings, perhaps very intentionally, almost. Um, but yeah. Um, and then they walk up those stairs and they go into that courtyard, which looked like a it, it looked like a completely enclosed space, but we didn't maybe see it from all angles, so we can't see know for sure. It looked like a motel. It could be an apartment courtyard too. Some readers, listeners were suggesting that perhaps this motel space was meant to evoke or is the same place where those scenes where Leland um, was having his affair with Teresa Banks. And there was another sort of shot in that movie in which Leland is supposed to party 
with Teresa and two other girls. He shows up and he looks into the room where the two other girls are supposed to, where they are. And it's Laura and I believe Ronette. And he freaks out and he pays some money to Teresa and says, I'm chickening out goodbye. And in those shots in particular, in the background, it really looks like the architecture of that courtyard, specifically the garage space um, that we saw in, in the credit sequence of this episode. So honestly, Darren, I, I don't know if, if that illusion is is correct. That is the same place. I, I don't know what it means, but again, it's interesting that all of these, you know, psychic horror places, that the, the geography of, of Twin Peaks is all hooking up in this way. So but let's get Mr. C into that room already, room eight. You know, he enters into this courtyard. He's taken by two other woodsmen to this door. He tries to open the door and it's locked. And out of nowhere emerges this woman in a nightgown and a bathrobe. Um, I don't want to make any assumptions. She appears to be a woman. She spoke backwards. Uh... Um, she was a very creepy, uh, a, a disconcerting figure. W- what did you make of this person, Darren? Uh, well, first of all, just that first shot of this figure's arrival, I thought was the scariest moment of this whole sequence. And it was scary in what I kind of think is like the classic Lynch way, where like you kind of watch it again and you're like, oh, actually, this figure could be the least scary like person in all of this. I, I, I actually kind of wondered, you know, Upon going back and, and rewatching this scene, Jeff, as I was, you know, graphing the uh, six dimensional, uh, you know, Gr- Grant Morrison inflected version of what I thought was going on, it struck me that this figure almost seemed to be um, the, the Black Lodge version of Carl at the trailer park. And it made me wonder <laughs> if what we were seeing here was if all these apartments and all these hotel rooms, if this wasn't some space for these like purely malevolent demonic figures who we've seen kind of like hanging around here, you know, your, your grandmothers and grandsons and your men in red who might have Sarah Palmer's face. If instead we, this was almost kind of a retirement home, maybe, which to me, like, you know, kind of made this, this, figure perhaps the protector of some kind i was also very struck and i'm sure a lot of people felt equally sort of teased by this that although we seem to be in something like the real world the backwards talk that was happening to me implied that this was another kind of threshold figure someone who perhaps bridges both worlds and i love your kind of take on it as a retirement home especially given what we find inside room eight after um, this threshold guardian opens up the door for Mr. C. He enters this room. It's a dark room. There's, there is a dimly lit, lit lamp, but there's a brighter lamp on, on the ceiling that is flickering um, in that great sort of like Lynch way. So many scenes in his, in his films, but even in Twin Peaks in particular, that has sort of like these glitching, flickering lights. And at first, he's looking around the, around the room and he doesn't see anything. And then it's like he's looking at a wall in the room, like a wood-paneled wall, and the wall seems to sort of like wipe away, and as if it's like a curtain of some kind, and it pushes aside, and the room suddenly becomes a deeper space, and in this deep space, there is something that 
we might have a funny word for it. Um, the machine, the device, on my closed captioning on my TV, it is, it is known as the device. It resembles the kind of like diving bell, alarm bell structure that we saw within the White Lodge that kind of started bleeding and, and sounding an alarm that attracted the fireman's attention way back in part eight in which he looked out into the world and noticed some evil transpiring and a bomb blasted America. So it re resembled that device. It also resembled the structure that was on top of the power station space station that was floating in ultraviolet violet space, that, that place in part three from which Cooper left the larger metaphysical, the Black Lodge realms, if you will, and then kind of beamed, teleported, transmigrated back to Earth. This is another version of that same shape, that same kind of device, but it had kind of like a teapot kettle spout that was spoke uh, that was puffing plumes of smoke into the air and uh ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the show philip jeffries because <laughs> we were told that this structure is the new physical form of the character played by david bowie so like Congratulations on your afterlife there, uh, Ziggy Stardust. Um, so I, that, that sounds kind of mean, but all I'm saying is, is that if this is, if, if this is what you get through all of, you know, if you go on the journey to find the grand metaphysical truths of our multiverse, um, perhaps selfishly in search for eternal life, and the best you get is being turned into a Lynchian teapot that is tucked away inside some hotel motel room in the phantom zone i might prefer annihilation over that <laughs> unless you came to visit me i mean and, and, and talk to me as as mr c talked to me anyway what did you make of that darren okay so so many thoughts here and i, I would even say like what they were saying to each other was initially almost kind of less important than just the whole nature of this extremely confusing and extremely loaded within the context of this season imagery first of all i am so intrigued by the fact that david lynch and mark frost in conceiving of this season you know, often when you are working on a story where, you know, it just so happens that for one reason or another, many of the performers who play some of the most important characters are no longer with us. Often that is when, as a kind of writer, you know, you begin to think, okay, maybe there's a way to, you know, how do we kind of refocus this away from those characters? Uh, I, I have absolutely uh, full, fascinating, glorious awe at the fact that they instead decided, well, uh, uh, we will make Major Garland Briggs a blue floating head in space. Um, we will make the character played by David Bowie into what uh, you, Jeff, called a magnificent kettle, uh, spewing smoke, by the way, that seemed to remind us a little bit of the smoke that was kind of circulating all around Andy in his own particular trip to a supernatural space. Lots of kind of fireman imagery there. And, and you know, I kind of was wondering if... 
we were meant to recall that there's another performer who didn't return for this season, uh, Michael Anderson, who played uh, the man from another place. He sort of, that character reappeared as a tree, as something biological. I was wondering if we were meant to glean some intriguing oppositional dynamic from the fact that here we have another character being reincarnated as something technological, but specifically kind of early technological. It seemed very early industrial steam pre kind of you know electronic digital revolution it made me kind of wonder if far from being a retirement home if philip jeffries was perhaps hiding here or to your point jeff if what we were seeing was the kind of cul-de-sac of seeking this particular transcendence you know one thing that i thought about a lot during this scene is that when gordon cole was kind of reaching up towards his mystical black hole sun wormhole epiphany in Buckhorn, he seemed to briefly see the stairwell that led to this place. And of course, Gordon Cole started from the same Blue Rose investigating place as Philip Jeffries. And I I did kind of wonder if, yes, this is the sort of end goal of this singular pursuit of whatever transcendence the Black Lodge has to offer you. That, you know, you're tuned into all the cool stuff happening here, but, uh, you know, well, maybe some people would prefer to be a magnificent kettle that can teleport between spaces, I kind of feel like, uh, you know, having a bunch of pals around you like Gordon does is perhaps the better end goal to work towards. This is all to say, Jeff, I was already very confused, and then they started talking about the plot, and then I got even more confused. What did you think about the kettle, and what did you think about what they were saying to each other? Um, Because as this digs into something that I love how you framed this. We thought we were getting answers, we just got a lot more questions. Well, first of all, I liked your ramble a lot. And we might note that there is something appropriate then that when David Bowie filmed those scenes for Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, I think the the behind the scenes legend goes is that he was preparing for a tour with his band at the time uh, known as Tin Machine. So it is kind of maybe fitting that that David Bowie has now taken the form of a tin machine. And this is sort of like, again, part of this deep homage, if you will, that Lynch is uh, his, his abstractions and his imagery and is, is paying homage to David Bowie. I, I like what you said about the notion that maybe he's actually not Maybe maybe he's hiding, that he is in hiding from someone. And there is that sort of Lynch idea in his work of people taking on new forms for the purpose of hiding and escaping from people who either are trying to like come after them or to hide and escape from some truth about themselves. You see that in Lost Highway. You see that in Mulholland Drive. So this idea that uh, that Philip Jeffries has transformed into something that is completely unrecognizable and has hidden himself away in a motel that's hidden away within a pocket dimension that might be hidden away in a larger dimension outside the world, that does intrigue me. I am kind of taken, though, with the notion of given how the theme of death and mortality weighs so much on this season. I'm not saying that maybe Lynch and Frost are shut down to the idea that maybe there is more to this world than just our, our, our finite mortal existence. In fact, I, 
I do wonder if they 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 do wonder if there is the, the adventure continues, the journey continues, as Margaret and Hawk talked about in this episode. But I think that that mad rush to extend your life, to seek immortality at great cost, at great damage to other people, to seek transcendence uh, to a destructive end is 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 not a good thing. And that people who do do that uh, get consigned to some lonely, terrible, hellish places, perhaps like this one. So that was just my overwhelming sense. As for the plot stuff itself... Yeah, so so chew on that, Peter Thiel. (laughs) More more references that maybe our audience doesn't know about. Well, let's talk more about Doom Patrol. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So as for the Judy stuff, you know, what was really striking about the whole discussion about Judy. And again, I I don't want to assume anything of our listeners, but I think that by now, 15 hours into this journey, um, the only people that are listening to this podcast are deeply steeped in Twin Peaks and know exactly what we're talking about. But yeah, in that scene in Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me, um, Philip Jeffries enters the FBI headquarters and says, well, you know, like, I'm not going to talk about Judy. But uh, so there was conversation about Judy. And the only thing that was really the thing that we could hang our hat on in that in terms of the information that was gleaned was that apparently, according to Jeffries, Mr. C has already met Judy. So she, he has encountered her. So I think that what we were encouraged to believe is that the person who is Judy is known to us. Um, and I think I was just so, so overwhelmed by the strangeness of this scene and the images and sounds of this scene and maybe the thematic meanings of the scene that frankly, I, I don't really have a good grasp on on the Judy of it all. Um, and and, and what that really means that, that now falls into a sort of like a class of mystery in this show where here at this late date um, with three hours now left, I'm just like, I, I don't know if I have any hot take theories. I'll just wait for them to tell me. But um, do, do you have any sense on who Judy might be and what that might mean? Jeff, not only that, I've solved it. No mystery at all. Everyone can go home. I figured it out. Um, no, but, but I do have a theory. Um, Judy is Laura Palmer. Uh, the the and what this means reverberates in a few different directions. Philip Jeffries essentially told Mister C, "Oh no, you and I have not been speaking at all this season." A little bit of interesting time setting for people who are keeping track of that. Still, Mister C asked him, "Did you call me five days ago?" That means for Mister C, it's been five days since he was with. Chantal in the hotel outside of Buckhorn. But, uh, um, you know, in that scene, the person who was claiming to be Philip Jeffries with their voice kind of all conflated seemed to be kind of saying that they were coming after Mr. C. You'll recall them sort of mumbling, I will be with Bob again. I, I think what we're meant to glean is that, you know, this other shadowy person Assuming we can trust a uh, teleporting tea kettle, which is always not necessarily something we should take at at face value, we can assume that that person has been sort of puppet mastering many of the things that have been sort of circulating throughout the Mr. C corner of this season. And I mean, like, yeah, it's it's Laura Palmer, right? It has to be. Like, in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, we may have discussed this on our uh, Fire Walk With Me podcast, Jeff. There was the initial script version of who Judy was. Um, which let's not even get into that. People can sort of like dig into that if, if they want. Um, but the way it kind of 
played out in Firewalk with me, Judy kind of seemed to be this metaphor, other name for Laura Palmer. And it, it made me sort of feel like, okay, like if there's anything to this sequence that is really kind of uniting together some of the different strands, it's the implication that, yes, Laura has been going after Mr. C. We might recall that the person pretending to be Philip Jeffries on the phone back in part two said, I missed you in New York. What that might mean about the thing that broke out of the square glass box um you know is that laura is that the experiment are they one and the same i don't really know but uh yeah judy's definitely laura palmer i will bet (laughs) i like your theory i do think that we have to do due diligence about something because now this is suddenly an interesting uh wrinkle in the larger meta story of twin peaks the return I know you did not want to go down the wormhole there of you were alluding to the fact that in the greater mythology of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, apparently we were going to learn, uh, according to the co-writer of that movie, Robert Ingalls, that Judy was the twin sister of Josie Packard, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So I, I got the sense that maybe you didn't want to go down this rabbit hole because we'll end up going on another 30-minute kind of conversation about it. But we should note that very early in the season, a letter that was reportedly to be written by Joan Chen, the actress who played Josie Packard in the original Twin Peaks and who is not a credited cast member of of, of this new Twin Peaks and we are told won't be in the show. She uh, wrote a letter that she gave to the Hollywood Reporter and or released publicly and she wrote it to David Lynch, but as her character as Josie Packard, kind of like pitching herself to be in the show or asking to be in the show. And in that letter, she says, oftentimes I think of Judy, my twin sister. And uh, be, and this is from a an internet kind of chronicle of this or summary of this letter. She's, quote, oftentimes I think of Judy, my twin sister. She continues before mentioning her being invading, uh, quote, Judy's body like a parasite. All I would say, I would encourage all of you to go seek out Joan Chen's letter and read it for some Judy intel. I'll be doing that before I write my full recap of this episode, which we'll post later today. But in an episode that had a lot of meta blurring of creators and their, uh, you know, like Mark Frost appeared in this show, there was an, an interesting David Lynch, Gordon Cole connection I do have this crazy theory that that letter that Joan Chen wrote is actually somehow in game with this series, this season. So uh, again, maybe this is a rabbit hole we shouldn't go down and we need to move on because I think we've now spent 90 hours talking about this scene. But uh, it might be worth investigating that letter and the whole Judy Josie Packard connection. And now that we're here, uh, we have to re-theorize that this season will end with a surprise cameo by Michael Antkeen and by Joan Chen. Uh, and it'll turn out that Sheriff Truman and Josie Packard are together in the afterlife solving mysteries. Okay. So now that we've got that out of the way. The uh, Mr. C seems to want to say some more things to Philip Jeffries. I kind of found Jeff that like, this was the rare scene where I actually found myself sort of like sympathizing a little bit with Mr. 
Mr. C? Because he seemed about as confused as I did. And indeed, the fact that you had the dark doppelganger of Kyle MacLachlan, you know, the on-screen analog of David Lynch before he just decided to star in this stuff, saying, please, afterlife version of David Bowie, can you explain this line from Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me? Loved that. Um, But uh, at that moment, the kind of flickering light started flickering more. There was a ring, ring, ring on the telephone. I think that was something that Andy saw in his vision last week. Let's put a pin in that, um, because there are a lot of telephones that ring on this show. Mr. C answered it. And he was suddenly outside of the convenience store. It was, you know, it was it was kind of as if he'd sort of like, you know, put his coin in the coin slot. He'd had his adventure in whatever dimension between dimensions this was, and his time was done. So kicked out. We're thinking to ourselves, Jeff. All right, well, that's a lot to chew on. Uh, and that's when Richard Horn arrived. Um, what did you kind of think about the meeting of these two characters? It seemed both uh, faded and almost a, a coincidence in the context of what we. Had just seen yeah um so apparently richard followed mr c after the encounter at the farm um a couple weeks ago and yeah he holds a gun to mr c um he assumes that he is dale cooper an fbi agent and mr c kind of took this really cryptic interest in him wasn't afraid of him at all approached him asked his name asked, why do you think of that of me? Like, why do you think that I'm an FBI agent? Richard kind of invokes his mom because my mom uh, had a picture of you. Uh, my mom's Audrey Horn. I'm, I, I think this information is disclosed. And then, <laughs> then, like, I just love how, like, David Lynch conceives of, like, fight scenes and physical altercations between people. Like, because, and, and some of the, the crazy stuff that he does, like, it makes me wonder if, like, if I tried that in real life would it work so so (laughs) mr c has a gun drawn on him and he needs to get out of this jam before this crazy unhinged kid shoots him so he does the old i'm gonna hawk a loogie on the ground and distract you trick (laughs) (laughs) which is a thing apparently so he like he spits on the ground which Richard like chooses to look at as he looks at the loogie on the ground, Mr. C uh, easily like puts him down, takes his gun away and, and just kind of like does what we all want to do to, to Richard Horn. Just, just basically just like kicks him and punches him and, 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 and very briefly just kicks the shit out of him. Yes. Um, yes. But he pockets his gun and instead of just wasting the kid, he seems to be very intrigued by him and his story. And so he says, get in the car. You're traveling with me. We'll talk on the way. On the way where? We don't know. We know that before he exits the scene, he sends a text, presumably to Diane, in which he writes Las Vegas, question mark. That puts now this moment Timeline-wise, you did some time uh, 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 scheduling for us and working the timeline for us a few minutes ago. We remember several episodes ago now, Diane drinking alone at that hotel in Buckhorn in which she receives a text from Mr. C saying Las Vegas. So now we know that that 
this moment kind of syncs up there. Um, that's where Mr. C was when he sent that text. And I, I, I think there's been some speculation out there that maybe Mr. C is not the person sending Diane those texts. But now I think we could be pretty confident that the answer is yes, that is Mr. C sending Diane those texts. So now they're traveling somewhere. And I suspect that maybe next week we will get some kind of traveling scene in which Mr. C will reminisce about, you know, this theory that is out there that Mr. C is actually Richard's father, that he conceived uh, Richard like through some kind of uh, rape that occurred when he visited Audrey in her coma shortly after entering the world after hijacking uh, Agent Cooper's life. So maybe we will get some insight into that during a car trip in the next episode. One thing that we didn't acknowledge in that scene is, is that Agent Jeffries was rather intrigued by the person who was visiting him, this Mr. C. And when Mr. C is sort of like asking him questions about the past and about Philadelphia, Agent Jeffries says, so you are Agent Dale Cooper. And interesting that Mr. C doesn't really answer that question. The other thing is, is that, you know, in the midst of that back and forth of like, who is Judy? What does she want with me? Whoa. Like, why am I not supposed to, why are we not supposed to be talking about Judy? Where is Judy? Philip does give him an answer in the form of a series of numbers that he puffs out of his kettle snout. <laughs> um <laughs> And I believe the numbers are, I, I thought for a moment that we were going to get the lost numbers because they began four, eight, but then I think it's five, five, one, four. And I actually think that the eight might have, I think it's eight to the zero power, actually. Who knows what the numbers mean? They clearly mean something to Mr. C. We, we get the sense from his texting and some of his other things that he's done that he speaks his own kind of like alphanumeric language. So maybe those numbers mean something to him. And that all happened before he got teleported. Uh, actually, Jeffries disappears from the room and then the phone rings. Uh, Mr. C picks it up and he is uh, sent out of this place back to the highway. So I, I- I don't think it was to the zeroth power, although th- th- it was so hazy I couldn't tell. I think those were coordinates, which means, which means, this is now the second batch of coordinates that Mr. C has gotten this season. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, anyway, I, I, I have a feeling that we should, like, yeah, we've just, we've just spent almost close to an hour talking about that one crazy stretch of this show. And, and I feel like we've almost struggled our way through talking through it, but it just kind of goes to show like this, this amazing power that, that, that the way that Lynch tells these stories and, and takes us into these dream places that are so dense with, with illusions and images and meanings. And well, they're so elusive, but they're so tantalizing in trying to de- de- decode and decipher them. And, 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 and I do enjoy it so much. I do enjoy thinking about it, but it, again, to pick up a theme that I talked about last week and even in my quick react, it's also the kind of thing where as much as I enjoy speculating about it, I do more sit in the modality of like, 
I loved that whole sequence for just being a weird thing and whatever it means, like I'll, I'll just wait on David Lynch and Mark Frost to tell us, you know? Yes, uh, absolutely. And the other thing that's great about it is, you know, we're going to spend maybe less time talking about some of the other emotional highs of the episode, but I do think it's important to mention that, you know, what I think really defines this season of Twin Peaks and the whole show, but I, I just feel like the deeper we get, the more aware of it I am. The fact that that you can shift from an incredibly uh, funny or incredibly dramatic human moment to something like that. You know, I, I feel like too often shows that want to be like Twin Peaks, they kind of get, like, okay, like, you know, the myth stuff is what we really have to focus on. And I love that even here at this late date, perhaps frustrating for some, but also invigorating uh, when it is sort of, you know, at the highest level this show can achieve, you get everything. You get sort of moments like that. Followed by, Jeff, um, I want to shift us to Las Vegas. My personal new favorite character, Special Agent Randall Headley, or Headley, of the FBI uh, Las Vegas branch. His pal Wilson comes in and says, uh, we've got Douglas Jones and his wife Jane here, but uh, just so you know, the kids are really upset, to which... God, J.R. Ferguson, you are just like the line reading champion of the month. To which, to which Randall responds, kids, uh, kids, uh, plural. And, and what I, what I love about that, besides the fact that, you know, this character is just such a loon who we're probably not going to spend very much time with. I love that there's a meta moment because we kind of have that reaction. Wait, wait, what? Like kids, uh, plural. Like I just, I, I so appreciated that. Yes, it was the wrong Douglas Jones and the wrong wife, Jane, which is going to be an issue because Jeff... Boy, oh boy, things are really coming together in Las Vegas. Um, Duncan Todd. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Do you realize how many times you've said that in this podcast this season? <laughs> boy, things are really coming together in Las Vegas. That is that is <laughs> to truly... which we have to now say here at part 15 with three hours left. Like, are they really <laughs> like, but I, I, I'm with you, man. I'm totally with you. It, it once again, it does feel like things are coming together in Las Vegas. <laughs> and yet, and yet things could, that is truly my own personal let's rock. That is my sort of like totem phrase that I will have to say in pretty much every episode going forward, but Duncan Todd, who lived and died behind a desk, uh, receiving phone calls and faxes, I almost kind of feel like the saga of Duncan Todd is the sort of like, you know, Dilbert <laughs> middle manager uh, version of Twin Peaks, um, you know, just so surrounded like in, in this city. He never got to go outside and, and smell the trees, you know, um, but uh I love that he calls in Roger and says, have we heard from Anthony? And almost kind of expressing some of our frustration, I think, his head is blown off by Chantal. <laughs> um, how did you kind of feel? The, yeah. the, the, fair to say, Jeff, uh, the Tarantinoid crew has arrived here in Las Vegas. I love how, you know, one thing that he's doing is that these rather quick, abrupt brutal dispatches of these evil people that he's he's you know Lynch and Frost have made us interested in all season long and then when it's when it's their time to go there's just really no romance of them there's no like there's no long goodbye it's just 
and and it almost seems fitting that way. I mean, it's as if he's saying, this is how much your life is worth because of the life that you've led. Like, like, you know, we've gotten to know you and all your dirty schemes and your, your, your sweaty strivings. Um, but the end, you're just, you know, like, uh, you know, Chantel walks in, shoots you dead. You're, and then you're gone, you know, like that's it. Um, Steven gets a little bit of that this this episode too. I'm also thinking of Chad. You know, we, we were made to um, be interested in Chad all season long in Twin Peaks. And then he just gets like suddenly arrested in an episode and thrown in prison and made to suffer a bunch of lunatics that are <laughs> like making weird sounds in, in, in the jail. But like, I, I like the way that these sort of like like secondary, like low life underworld figures are, are meeting their demise. And yeah, like Chantel comes in, like calmly blows them away, like walks away to the elevator, calls Hutch, asks if she can get some fries ordered up. And then all of a sudden here's Roger moaning. Um, I believe Roger moaning um, back in the room. And he's like, she's like, ah, crap, I'll be right back. And so she walks back in and shoots him again and like uh, puts him down and then, and then, and then walks away. And then we got that another bit of Tarantino-esque banter between Chantel and Hutch in their car. Um, after this assassination, they're debriefing over fast food and they're kind of like once again sort of riffing on the paradoxes and ironies in America. This whole idea uh, Hutch is sort of like justifying their own nihilistic, immoral killing behavior by noting that apparently that our government also engages in assassinations and kind of uh, ruminating on the moral hypocrisy of America, like thou shalt not kilt a kill. No, thou shalt kilt. And mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, kilt. Um, anyway, so um, <laughs> this in the context of, I, I like how the fact that they are so loving and nurturing to each other, like like they have the most f- functional, like romantic relationship on the show. Yes, yes. <laughs> These two like nihilistic, immoral hit men. Do you know, do you know why, Jeff? It's because they work together. That's why they are they are united together. This is the Twin Peaks guide to relationships. If you if you share a common hobby, then uh, that's the route to a successful relationship. <laughs> Good point. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what the point of all of that is. But Jeff Dougie, he is <laughs> yes. having his dessert. Um, Janie E. tells him it's like all our dreams are coming true, which if there is any loaded term in a project directed by David Lynch, uh, the word dreams and the, the, the word dreams and the possibility of happiness is uh, definitely something that makes you kind of stand up at attention. And then there was a moment that, frankly, we could spend two hours talking about. What was your kind of interpretation of the choice of a specific clip that seemed to sort of spark something within Agent Cooper? I, I just, I, I, this was the moment for me that was the like thirty-one exclamation point moment um, of the night. I think another moment in which it, it seemed like some kind of like real meta is entering into the story for not, you know, not that we're going to find out at the end of the show that like, oh, guess what? It's the, the, the secret to the reality of Twin Peaks, The Return, is that it's all a TV show being made by Mark Frost and David Lynch. Um, 
but I'm wondering if if like meta is being used almost ironically to describe like certain internal experiences that are happening within characters. So Dougie is eating his cake. He's fiddling around with a remote control. He happens to quote unquote accidentally presses the power button. The TV comes on and he happens to be watching like, you know, the first half of the film Sunset Boulevard, famous like meta Hollywood film noir directed by Billy Wilder, I believe, about a washed up screenwriter who ends up uh, spending uh, his last couple months of life trying to write a script for a washed up movie star named Norma Desmond. Things go terribly wrong for both of them. He ends up kind of quote unquote cheating on her by writing a script for another with another woman and he ends up being dead uh, getting killed by Norma Desmond spoiler alert and the whole movie one of the famous sort of like storytelling choices of this movie is that the whole movie is being narrated by this dead man by the screenwriter as he's sort of like fading out of life and floating in Norma Desmond's pool so with that said, there is a moment in this movie where I believe Norma Desmond is visiting uh, Cecil B. DeMille, and she's inquiring about this script that she's been trying to develop and write herself and turn into her big comeback uh, vehicle. I believe it's an adaptation of Salome or something like that. And uh, uh, DeMille is sort of humoring her and she walks away. And then when she walks away, DeMille asks to get someone on the phone for him or he needs to see someone, an executive at Paramount by the name of Gordon Cole. So Dougie is eating his chocolate cake and he's watching this scene play out. And when he hears the words Gordon Cole, something suddenly triggers in him. He recognizes that name. He starts kind of like pounding on the remote control as if maybe trying to stop the scene which is an interesting bit of a choice on his part because I wouldn't expect Dougie in his current state of mind or experience to know how to do that. But but something is triggered in him and a look kind of comes over his face. And I swear in that moment, Darren, I really thought that we were going to get like Agent Cooper's consciousness has finally like uh, the sleeper has awakened and he has like a, a taken a, asserted control within the body of Dougie there. Or maybe we kind of don't know, but this sort of meta moment. Also, oh, and this is all to say the thing that one of the significant things about Sunset Boulevard to this larger creation is that it's one of David Lynch's favorite movies. Um, and you can go and look that up and research that. So he loves Sunset Boulevard. You know, it, it's one of his favorite films. It's no accident then that he took the name of his character from Twin Peaks, Gordon Cole, from that film. And so you have um, Dougie who is in some form Agent Cooper, played by Kyle MacLachlan, um, one of uh, David Lynch's main, many famous on-screen alter egos and a longtime collaborator, hearing the name Gordon Cole. And all of, for, for me, kind of steeped in all of this lore about Lynch and Twin Peaks and all of that, the, the meta moment there was it, it was it was definitely kind of surreal and weird, but it triggers a moment of metacognition within uh, Cooper. And so this idea that like 
I thought it was just kind of funny, ironic that maybe this meta awakening within Dougie, the, the awakening of Cooper is triggered by a literal meta moment or a, a very clever, ironic meta moment involving uh, Gordon Cole and Lynch. Regardless, in the context of this story, Agent Dougie, harboring perhaps the consciousness of Agent Cooper, hears the name of his former boss, Gordon Cole, and something stirs, something awakens from him, and he looks away from the TV, and he looks down on the baseboard, and there he sees an electrical outlet, and he can hear it sparking, and he can hear it crackling, and almost like it's calling to him, and he gets down on his hands and knees, and he crawls toward it, and he decides to investigate this electrical outlet as any sane, normal person would do, or, or which is to say, uh, the, the, the childlike person that, that Dougie currently is. I'm going to put a fork in it. So uh, he, he takes his fork with which he was eating his chocolate cake. He tries to use the prong and that doesn't work. He thinks that may, you think that maybe he would like, you know, give up then, but no, like Dougie harboring the consciousness of agent Cooper likes to investigate things. He's a problem solver. So he turns the fork around and he turn <laughs> takes the handle and he, and, and he pushes it inside the thing. And of course, uh, sparks fly all the electricity in the house goes out. We see Dougie get zapped. We see him kind of collapse on the ground. We cut to a shot of Janie E in the kitchen who is doing dishes. She screams. We hear Sonny uh, uh, Jim Jones's voice somewhere upstairs, perhaps crawling, calling out what's going on and then cut to black and fade out. So Dougie, we, we remember that, like, Dougie entered this world by being transmitted out of the transcendental ultraviolet space through an electrical outlet, re-enters this world through an electrical outlet. Obviously, maybe something is stirring within him, remembering that. Here's my question. I wonder when electricity is restored and the lights go back on in that house, I wonder if Janie E is going to look at that space where her husband once was and no one is going to be there. And I wonder if if Dougie has has gone somewhere in the way that Black Lodge beings or people suffused with this kind of energy tend to travel through electrical wires and stuff. I'm wondering if... Dougie is en route somewhere. Yes. I mean, in a, in a night when we saw all the lights go off in another house separate in this episode, um, we'll be talking about that in a moment after the sad passing of a beloved character. You know, the notion of death as change was very strong. I, I personally think we might return and see that Agent Cooper is there. You know, this is no longer Dougie. This is now Agent Cooper. We'd love to know what, what that kind of conversation is like. But it, it did make me think that like you know there there is an ending happening here we're seeing the end of jeff beloved twin peaks character dougie a phrase i truly never thought i would say before this season started i i you know that was kind of my rough interpretation intrigued to see if instead he goes off on a head tripping adventure that would be very interesting too can i offer a quick quick prediction about what's going to happen here oh my god absolutely so this is i am going to go into predictive theory mode here not everyone he can't help himself he can't help himself but I can't help myself. Just when he thinks he's out, they pull him back in. (laughs) We might remember that after Chantal killed 
uh, Roger and Duncan Todd, I believe she said one down, one to go. So who else is she going to kill? Who else is she going to torture? That's the other thing that was interesting about that Chantal Hutch scene is that she's getting itchy for some torture. So I'm wondering if what's going to happen is Dougie is now gone. He might make a pit stop somewhere in some Black Lodge lands. Maybe he might find himself in that same convenience store place and, 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 and use that to portal into other places like the White Lodge and have an encounter with the firemen, whatever. But I think that as a result of this journey, he will ultimately end up in Twin Peaks. He will um, solve a bit of business in Twin Peaks. And then I think that he will get back probably through um, another electrical outlet back in time to Las Vegas to save Janie E from being killed and tortured by Chantel. So that's what I think is, that's my prediction for the final three hours of the show. It's been a really busy summer, as you guys might imagine. A lot of podcasting, a lot of entertainment coverage, and... My fiance and I are getting hitched in a few months, busy with that. Just recently, I thought it'd be nice, just went to the store, got her some flowers. She really liked them. But what if there was a way for me to deliver flowers to her and not have to go to the store, and they'd be great flowers, and there was a way to get 20% off of some rose bouquets? I'm talking about Pro Flowers, because they want to help you surprise someone for no reason at all, while also surprising you, our listeners, with a special deal. You can get 20% off any of their unique summer rose bouquets or any other bouquet of $29 or more. Their colorful rainbow roses are always a hit if you aren't sure what to send someone or if you are going to be married to someone soon and you feel like you need to let them know how much they matter to you while you've been waking up early to discuss Twin Peaks with your colleague Jeff Jensen all summer long. Pro Flowers bouquets are guaranteed to stay fresh for at least seven days or your money back. You control the delivery date. You get more bloom for your buck. Big, beautiful flowers with more stems for your money. To get 20% off summer roses or any other bouquet of $29 or more, go to proflowers.com and use the code TWINPEAKS at checkout. That's proflowers.com and code TWINPEAKS. All one word. Jeff, the show's called Twin Peaks. Let's shift to Twin Peaks. We talked about this a little earlier in the episode. Nadine, Norma, Big Ed... Characters who loom large on the show, characters who we haven't been entirely clear on their dynamic in this season, and I think what I liked so much about the sequence that played out at the beginning of part 15 is that it was kind of clear that like it had been some version of the perpetual stasis that we left them in. It almost felt to me like this was the showrunner saying, hey, yeah, like, um, you know... You could remember the stuff that happened in season two with Nadine and the super strength, um, or you just kind of have a, have, have a rough sense of what their kind of romantic outline was, and we're going to pick that up here. Um, I, I'd love to know what you think, Jeff. You, I think, are the world's foremost Nadine fanboy. Um, as moved as I was by the stuff between Big Ed and Norma, I find the scene that's kind of making me tear up a little bit in hindsight is Nadine's kind of incredible speech to Big Ed at his 
his gas farm. This, you know, we see her kind of on this triumphant walk. She's carrying her golden shovel, which we know is kind of meaningless and just a thing that some crazy old man is selling, but that she is given such an incredible amount of weight to. She says, I'm shoveling myself out of the shit. And I just love that. I love the sort of, you know, peace that she's found. And when she tells Big Ed that, you know, of course, I love you, but I want you to go to Norma because true love is giving the other what makes them happy. You know, this is just a moment that transcends all predictions and theories and wondering what the hell that man with the, you know, clown mask is. I just, I was so moved by that, Jeff. How did you kind of feel about this sort of beautifully constructed playing out of really perhaps the end of the saga of Ed and Norma and Nadine? I I loved it in the sense, yeah, it was... I want happiness for all of these people. So I want happiness for Nadine. I want happiness for Ed. I want happiness for Norma. And I think that Nadine is correct in the sense of like, here in the time that we have left in this world, you should be with the one that you love. And that, because I love you, that thought makes me happy. And I think that we've been you know, we've seen enough of Nadine to know that she has um, a lot of good things going on in her life uh, too. I mean, she's got her business, which is a fulfillment of her dream, run silent, run drapes. Um, She's developed maybe a rapport and a relationship with Dr. Jacoby. So maybe she has some love going on in her life too. That said, as much as I loved her speech and all of that, I have to say that I wonder if she was owning way much more than she needed to for a person who's had a, a tough life, um, who's clearly struggled with some kind of mental illness. But all the stuff that she kind of owned in this, like telling Ed, I've been a bitch to you all these years and you've been a saint to me. Telling Ed that she's been a jealous wife, a manipulative wife who has guilted him into staying. And to, to, to while to some degree those things are accurate based on our knowledge of Twin Peaks. I think that they've always been understood in the context of a person who has had a lot of damage, who is suffering from some kind of maybe mental illness. And I think that Ed's reaction was appropriate, kind of hearing her tell all of this. Like she, He was kind of pushing back on this. You, you got the sense that if he had the language for it, he might say like, Nadine, you're just you're you're taking way too much responsibility for this. But he also questioned her sincerity too, because I think that there have been some moments where Nadine has evidenced this attitude, and the next morning she's woken up and said, like, oh, I've changed my mind. Um, we got the sense that maybe something like this has happened before in the past 25 years. Maybe that she's had these moments of granting him release um, and then reconsidered it the next day. But no, she said, No, I'm in my right mind on this. Like, I took this really, really long walk. I had lots of time to think about it. Like, uh, no, I know what I'm doing. And I think, uh, so yeah, that, that was my my first sense of things that I thought that maybe she was taking way too much responsibility. But I also think that maybe Ed saw, like, regardless of what she's saying, whether she's taking too much ownership for her for, for stuff here in their relationship, she's right you know, like seize the day. They deserve happiness. He deserves happiness. And there is truth in what she's saying. So like, I'm gonna, once he let that sink in, there was that moment where after, as Nadine was walking away, he's watching her 
And then it almost like her words sink in, sunk in and he glommed onto their meeting and he kind of had a twitch that kind of meta recognition kind of similar to Dougie in, in Vegas hearing Gordon Cole's name um, is like, yeah. So yeah, you're right. I am. Let, let's go. I'm going to go to her now and uh, cue the Otis Redding. He hops into his golden truck and he drives to the double R and the, the music starts playing. He enters into the diner. He gives this big salute hiya you know to norma and norma beams when she sees him and he walks right up to her and he's like you know uh nadine has given me my freedom we could be together and she's like oh but i gotta talk to walter sorry (laughs) (laughs) i have to talk to beloved pacific northwest uh news personality grant goodeve first give me give me a moment here ed yeah i you know i i hear everything you're saying jeff I, i think maybe you know Everything you're saying is totally right and is making me looking at look at that scene in a different way. The one thing that I did like about it is it reminded me a lot of like, you know, whenever I talk to people who love, love, love the new Star Wars movies, like I kind of look at those movies and all I see is like shameless capitalism and, you know, sort of drawing on like easy, you know, ways to get to get people to give you their money, similar to what I think Dr. Amp does. At the same time, whenever people tell me how much they love them and why they love them and how it's inspired them, I'm always kind of like, all right, Franich, like maybe maybe just sit back and enjoy the fact that people are like getting something out of something and maybe there's something you aren't seeing. So that was kind of more what I got from that scene was Big Ed being like, wait, what? Like a golden shovel like what like he's such an old school guy he clearly doesn't think much of dr amp and from what from what we've seen of him i'm not certain that we should either but i do think there is kind of like okay like if this has found you peace and clearly you now have a fantastic business selling this you know incredible invention that goes all the way back in their relationship so that's kind of what i liked about that and to shift right into ed going to the other very successful businesswoman he happens to be in love with um, I just loved the the buildup to that, the just sort of way the camera rested on Everett McGill. He was definitely doing like that's like transcendental meditation, right? Can we can we say that this is this is the sort of you know David? Right, right, right. <laughs> well, a, a couple things about that. So Lynch gives us this moment in which we think, all right, we're going to get this amazing romantic moment. Like Ed and Norm are going to be together. We're going to get someplace, and then yeah, like. So we talked about earlier, like he frustrates it by Walter coming in and you kind of think like, oh, and, and so you get this long shot of sad sack Ed, his forward momentum, his romantic quest, like all of a sudden just derailed and he sits down at the counter. He orders some coffee and a cyanide tablet. <laughs> <laughs> he says to Shelley, he's so bummed. It's at this moment that like the, the Otis Redding music is suddenly interrupted. Um, and so this romantic moment is derailed and you think that Walter and Norma are going to have another uh, one of their sort of romantic moments slash business conversations. But no, no, no. What Norma says is that she's there to basically break up with him in every possible way. She declares that she wants to get out of the franchising business. She just wants to, she wants to exercise an option or a contract with Walter for her to buy her out of the soon to be, like, I think that 
there are, well, there are apparently soon to be seven franchises total, but she's going to exercise her option for Walter to buy her out of six of them, and she's going to retain the original, the flagship double R. And that essentially marks the end of their relationship. Walter thinks that he's he, she's making a big mistake and apparently doesn't want anything to do with her if they can't be in business together. So he walks out. Cut to... As this scene is finishing, you get that great shot where Ed is sitting at the counter with his eyes closed. And yeah, you almost got the sense of like, is he trying to center himself and recenter himself after this heartbreaking moment? Or is he trying to will an outcome into existence to make his dream come true? And is he trying to uh, just produce like, positive thoughts around him to to cultivate the thing that he wants and as we kind of like see Walter pass him we want what we ended up getting so it had this weird surreal effect where you wanted to see Norma enter the frame and hug him or show him some affection and sure enough you see her hand come in out of frame and touch her sh- his shoulder and he smiles warmly and he turns to her and they beam at each other and they kiss And he says, marry me. And she agrees. And Otis Redding swells on the soundtrack. And and then we we cut to the skies. And and Shelly's just looking on, so smiling and all of this. And they kiss again. And the music, one of the decisions that he makes in this scene that I love is that you would think that you would just kind of end on a shot of just them and cut to something else. But no, he recognizes that one of the most powerful elements in this whole sequence is the song that he's playing so he cuts away from them and he cuts to the blue sky with the clouds that are like angelic feathery wings and he lets the Otis Redding song play out I loved it mm-hmm. yeah I am um, just so moved by it and one thing I would say is I'm realizing as we talk about this scene Jeff that like as recently as five or six years ago like you know when I was just a little bit younger and I think like maybe more prone to like cynicism like I, I probably would have like not liked this scene I, I, I think I would have felt like oh, okay like right. you know too much too much wish fulfillment like and, and you know I'm very conscious of that with reboots in general I think one reason why I like this is you know it's it's not as if it's not as if this season has, has been full of uh, fan servicing wish fulfillment I think it's fair to say so when that does happen it's interesting but I also think that and this gets back to what you were saying earlier the sort of dissonance of how sequences in this episode specifically and in Twin Peaks in general kind of play out I love that you have this extraordinarily old-fashioned romantic moment. I mean, something that wouldn't have seemed out of place in movies much older than Sunset Boulevard. I love that you have this moment juxtaposed against, um, if you don't mind moving on, another sort of quote-unquote romantic, parentheses, not that romantic moment in Twin Peaks, um, out in the forest. (laughs) Stephen and Gersten Hayward... This scene, Jeff, I, you know, this scene, I would say, might have been my favorite of the episode, just because I think it's like a mini masterpiece that only Lynch could have done, that only, you know, 
just almost post-verbal what Steven is saying. I kind of played it back with the closed captioning, and I have, like, just, you know, one theory about what he is saying, but just the initial effect of this is just so physical and gross, and the fact that they're both wearing this, like, shock of red, and that, you know, Alicia Witt's hair is also kind of, you know, like, red-flavored, just they stand out so much against this incredible backdrop of this tree that's bigger than them, and Steven is just sort of rambling and it's not clear if he's saying he's done something or he's gonna do something at one point he looks at her and says i'm a high school graduate which just seems like such a tragic statement in the context of what's going on you know and then of course uh you know perhaps wrong of me to say only david lynch could have done this because mark frost literally arrives on the scene in the form of a character you you mentioned this in your initial kind of react to the show jeff this is a character that we've seen before in twin peaks right yeah, Cyril Pons, I believe, is his name. In the original Twin Peaks, there were occasional uh, uh, scenes of, of of a news coverage of, say, like the the the, the Laura Palmer murder and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, Cyril, played by Mark Frost, was the TV reporter reporting on these events. So um, apparently, he is uh, definitely a resident of Twin Peaks. Um, perhaps now a resident of the Fat Trout uh, trailer park. Um, and uh, he walks his dog through uh, Ghostwood Forest, um, and he happened upon Stephen and, and, and Gersten having um, this, yeah, post-verbal, I love that, Darren, uh, meltdown. I watched that scene with the closed captioning. Uh, the first time I watched the show, I watched it with closed captioning, and yeah, I definitely want to hear your theory on what you think was happening there, because according to the the, the stuff that he was saying, you you get the sense that he had a gun through all. So they're intertwined together, this man, this woman, deeply troubled in this sort of Eden-esque setting, huddled at the base of this gigantic tree. And they are quivering in guilt and shame and uh, and and craziness. You get a real sort of like you know myth of the fall here yeah. uh, vibe, and you get the sense the way that he's talking that he has done something very very bad, perhaps with the gun that he's holding in his hand. She's trying to talk him out of this notion. Uh, maybe he didn't do it. Maybe she did it. Maybe it didn't involve violence or the gun. Maybe she gave him, we might assume, um, she is Stephen's wife, whose name is... Becky. Becky. Um, thank you. Like, maybe they're talking about Becky. You got the sense that maybe Becky gave him some drugs, maybe overdosed him on Sparkle. He's definitely tweaking out on something. He's scratching his arms the way that, that the junkie young people on this show have been scratching their arms as a result of some reaction to some drugs they've been taking, presumably Sparkle. Like, as their conversation progressed, you really couldn't tell if, like, again, he's just stoned or if he really is, if something really did happen. I I suddenly wondered in the middle of watching the scene, if this is one of those scenes that Lynch is playing out of order, if maybe in the next couple episodes, we're going to get the events that preceded this scene and show us what happened uh, later on, regardless 
Stephen continues to, uh, to melt down in his mind. Look, I'm a high school graduate, whatever that means. Um, but again, we re- remember that this is a guy who's just struggled with self-esteem issues and manhood issues all season long. He starts rambling on about things about maybe being lightning in a bottle or whatever. Then he gets really coarse and gross with her. Like he tells her how much he's enjoyed, you know, uh, effing her and talking about certain body parts or whatever. And as he kind of goes down this sort of like really you know, disturbing, uh, road, uh, Gersten just starts crying. And in that moment, they're so intertwined with each other. And he's got this gun in his hand. You've got the sense of like, is she crying? Because like this man that she loves is just going insane or is she really scared? Is she hate? Is she not like she's, she's a trapped woman who's being degraded by this monster. I think maybe all of these things are true. It was a scene of abstracted sound and intense emotion. His nonverbal mutterings were mirrored by these sort of abstracted sounds on the soundtrack of like this weird sort of like eerie jazz music combined, percussive jazz music combined with, it sounded like the trees moaning, you know, in some kind of like the metallic way. Like, and you got the sense that the forest was alive and these magnificent trees contain souls or ancient beings and look if we find out at the end of the show or if the if the if the what we're supposed to be speculating is that the the forest the ghostwood forest literally is haunted and the trees are like the ghosts of woodsmen maybe they take the form of trees or there's it's 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 the dead that have that now kind of like like reside as trees in the forest i don't know but it was just so haunted and so eerie but am I saying anything here that kind of contradicts or whatever your interpretation of the scene, or do you have a different kind of version of things? You're you're right on. Um, what I was thinking initially was that yes, he had taken too many drugs, and Gersten was blaming it on Becky. The second time I watched it, a few things he said, and her saying she did it. I kind of wonder if we're going to see that what happened is that he has shot Becky. We kind of noticed that we noticed that um and i don't know anything about guns so i might be wrong about how this works he seems to put one bullet inside of the chamber and it made me wonder if he was refilling it if he had already shot it um previously um i wonder if we'll see that there is some kind of an altercation uh that takes place between steven and becky um which would be very unfortunate for her it's very clear that whatever has happened has put him in a state and just to kind of echo what you were saying about the trees jeff i mean you know i i i've kind of always wondered if the easy way to understand twin peaks is that the trees are alive and therefore like a place like the Great Northern made of logs is just like a gigantic haunted tree cemetery. I did get this incredible sense from this scene it is sort of like, you know, if you combine the Terrence Malicky view of the beauty of nature with the Werner Herzogy view of the chaotic, merciless, inhuman qualities of nature, you get a scene like this where it almost seems as if as the camera just lingers on Gersten's face 
as she's kind of looking up. There's this moment of what seems sort of like clarity and also horror all at the same time. All good. Uh, I, I just, I loved everything about this. And as you said, Jeff, uh, the the exit of Steven, the, the sort of unmourned quality of this, it just felt like we were meant to really interpret a lot about what the show is saying about this kind of a guy, the sort of pointlessness of him. Let's walk through real quick, though, like what, what happened there, right? Yeah. So like they're in the middle of this conversation. Cyril walks in with his dog. They all freak out seeing each other. Cyril's like, oh, this looks scary. I'm getting out of here. Uh, um, Kirsten sees Cyril and like like screams and freaks out like they've been caught somehow and runs behind the tree and then the camera stays on her and then the sound track goes silent and then we hear a gunshot and i think that we are i mean we we can't assume anything in this show but i think we are led to believe that steven killed himself yeah god i mean what a what a moment her like running and hiding behind the tree was such a like kindergarten thing i mean just to to throw that in the mix of a scene that was just them sort of like being erotic and fatalistic and seeming to just be i, I just you know incredible tonal structure to this moment intrigued to see if we kind of get more of it or if this just plays into the fact that this whole season has been one long dare keep kids off drugs kids don't do sparkle <laughs> message from your friends David Lynch and Mark Frost um, and just to quickly uh, wrap it up I loved that um, the Mark Frost character goes down to the Fat Trout trailer park uh, Carl sort of walks out and seeming to almost anticipate what is going to be required Carl is already carrying a shovel <laughs> I just loved that so much <laughs> Oh, yeah. I just yeah. love that so much. Um, Jeff, the Roadhouse, it turns out that uh, they do sometimes play music that is not attached to a band being there. Uh, I believe that the MC introduced some music from ZZ Top, and the MC did an incredible little sort of like rockin' dance in this way that made me think we're meant to interpret that like the energy level at the Roadhouse is getting higher and perhaps stranger. We'll circle back to that in a little bit. But... Uh, <laughs> In, in in an episode, Jeff, that had some of the most beautiful and strange imagery the show has ever had, I love that we also got, like, the David Lynch superhero fight scene, and it was even sort of, like, shot such that when Freddy had to defend his pal James during uh, what we gather was a long-simmering altercation with Renee's husband, just, there was one shot of the green rubber-gloved fist coming into frame that looked to me like almost like, you know, some old, like, Jack Kirby comic strip thing or something, like, just like, wham! <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, I, I just, you know, love that so much. Fair to say, uh, I was not anticipating this was going to be the first time we saw the pile driver fist in effect. Um, but how did you kind of feel about the, we rapidly picked up with the, the saga of Freddy the hero, and it took some interesting turns in uh, this episode? Well, in every origin story of the superhero, there is that moment where the hero must learn through some mistakes that with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> so 
I would just say that my guess is that the reason why the fireman gave Freddie the glove wasn't for a moment like this, in which you are playing wingman to your best bud James as he's cruising the roadhouse to pick up on a married woman. And um, Renee, turns out Renee is married. And there have been some previous incidents, I guess, in which uh, James has done things to essentially make a move on Renee, including perhaps the moment that we saw a few weeks ago in which he sang Just You and I um, from the stage and made Renee kind of swoon, or at least maybe not necessarily for James, um, but made her swoon. And like... Uh, on this night, Renee is hanging out with her husband and a pair of friends, and turns out that Renee's husband doesn't really take kindly to like, <laughs> like sweet innocent James just taking this really, like innocent, like n- I mean no offense, uh, young uh, a man, I I just like your wife. Um, can't I just like moon over her and hit on her and. Um, and, uh, like, why would you possibly have a problem with that? Like, but seriously, like, I, I don't mean to you any offense. Well, like, um, Chuck, another, yet one more character on this show with a Charles variation of a name, a variation on the name Charles. Chuck's like, no, like, I don't like this. Like, get away. You're creepy. Um, and he and his friend get up to have this all, you know, like confront James and, um, he takes a swing at James, puts James down on the ground. I think that James kind of deserves it. Even if you have these men treating women like possessions, but regardless, but, but, uh, you know, like I, I think our read on the James moment a couple weeks ago when he was singing Just You and I, and he had the Donna and Maddie, Maddie backup singers. And the, our read on that scene as somewhat sad and maybe kind of creepy, I think is totally correct. This image of James that is that is emerging is, I, I like him. He's a good guy. He's sweet and innocent at heart, but he seems like really clueless too. And <laughs> <laughs> like uh, like uh, I don't I don't I don't I don't really get him. I don't necessarily know if I totally like him, but regardless, like Freddie the wingman like stands up for his friend and says, "Um, hey, like you know, like don't don't hit my friend. And what are you going to do about it?" And so he just lightly taps Chuck in the face with his glove and taps his other friend in the glove. But these are like, not only does he like put these men in intensive care with his pulverizing green super strength glove, but you almost got the sense that like it had some kind of like other additional effect on them. Like, uh, like maybe it like introduce some toxin yeah. into their being. Like they kind of like almost had like a drug overdose, like in, in, in a way, like um, um, it, it was, it was strange. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, Very, I, 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 so whatever magic properties that the green glove has, they, they may extend beyond just uh, strength and power. Uh, very strange, um, and I was very struck, Jeff, that uh, James has remained in a particular kind of stasis, like a lot of the cast members of the original Twin Peaks. His stasis is like, James, can you just once don't fall for the other guy's gal, like, or or at least like you know if <laughs> right, if you're right. if you're going to do that, just just like think think carefully, think about the situation, um, and the reason why I think Jeff we were meant to sort of recall James's relationship with Laura Palmer, maybe his other relationship with that one gal who was 
dating her brother or something. Let's not think about that. Um, uh, he was then put in a prison cell uh, right where he was at the end of the Twin Peaks pilot. And in an interesting bit of symmetry that was... It found us the 10th weirdest thing about that scene. Uh, the person putting him in that prison cell was Bobby Briggs, who had been in another prison cell at the end of the Twin Peaks pilot. I, I loved the sort of... <laughs> The sort of right. the, the the sort of buried lesson there, I think, might be you know, hey, some some people do move on, and, and you know, you know, just when he, Bobby sees a picture of Laura Palmer, yes, emotions return to him, but there's more to his life now, and some people don't move on. Um, but the, the other great thing about uh, about that scene, Jeff, of Freddie and James being put in their jail cells, um, if you're number tracking, uh, I, I'm not usually good at, at this part of Twin Peaks because, you know, basically all I have is like a note card that says 430 written on it, and I, I look at it every episode, and <laughs> there still hasn't really been much indication of that yet yet um but uh, i was struck by the fact that uh hawk um or they're they're told uh, you know put him in eight and i believe freddie winds up in jail cell eight and i believe that earlier in this episode we saw that the magnificent tea kettle that once was ziggy stardust is staying in room eight of the dutchman's no idea what that means. Uh, perhaps Freddie uh, will perform a musical number for us later in the season, but I, I like that kind of bit of synchronicity. How did you feel about the uh, the, the gradually filling up Twin Peaks uh, jail cells? Strangely enough, I, I love that moment that you talked about, the, the irony of Bobby putting James in the jail cell. And you, to your point, which I think that idea that to juxtapose the idea of one person who has been able to move on and another one who's sort of like stuck in a rut, stuck in stasis. I was struck by the choice that Lynch and Frost don't make in this moment was just some moment of recognition between Bobby and James, like Bobby kind of like a close up on Bob uh, on Bobby looking at James and just shaking his head or something like that. And, and just as if to sort of acknowledge even non-verbally, but through looks or expressions, the history between these two guys. Um, but no, like Bobby just does his job. Like he puts, I believe he's the one that puts Freddie in his cell while, while Hawk takes care of, of James. But like, I think Bobby kind of shakes his head a little bit at the craziness of it all, but there's just no, there's just no like awareness of like their rapport or whatever. These ironies have probably since have been duly noted long ago and they've long passed them and they just have no, their history is just that ancient yeah. history. Yeah. Um, but I was just struck that they don't get, you know, and, and, and so to that end, choosing to play the scene that way, I think kind of like conveys the meaning that you're saying, which is that Bobby represents a guy who somehow evolved forward and James has not. Meanwhile, the jail cell is getting filled with just this eclectic group of crazies and I want a whole spinoff just about <laughs> them together forever um, in this sort of no exit hell of the Twin Peaks uh, a sheriff department uh, a, a, a jail where NATO kind of like makes her weird clucking sounds and Freddie and and, 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 and and James are just like, well, this place is weird. And you have <laughs> Billy and the other Excel just like parroting everything that is said. And Chad, and Chad is just like covering his ears and going, this is just madness. This is a nut house. Um, uh, 
you wonder where all of that is going. Like it's now more than just, oh, a a place where we're keeping some, I mean, this jail's now full of people and you've got, I'm wondering if we're building to something with all of these characters like down there. So um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I would just say my theory is Freddy is now right across the uh, jail cell corridor from a woman we know is very important. Perhaps if someone comes for her, she now has a protector. Um, or maybe her protector was drunk Billy the whole time. Um, Jeff, uh, this episode was dedicated to a fictional character who, uh, like a lot of characters on the show, has become larger than life. Margaret Lanterman, we had one more check-in with the log lady. Um, You know, I've kind of talked before about how I think it's really lovely and strange how Lynch and Frost are really kind of painting with mortality in this season and just the, the, the rarity of having a show where so much of the plot and the filming is based around these characters and performers who are no longer with us. Um, You know, very beautiful moment with the late Catherine Coulson as the log lady kind of providing her last sort of uh, message to Hawk. How did you kind of feel about the, about the, the handling of this? It felt like you've talked a lot about meta moments in this episode. This was like simultaneously meta and yet also deeply personal, I think for everybody involved in the filming of this scene. Right. So, I mean, the actress Catherine Coulson, um, longtime friend and collaborator of David Lynch. Um, she filmed all of these scenes very early in the production of Twin Peaks. And then while she was struggling with illness, and then she passed away shortly thereafter. So this entire stretch of the show is just layered with all of this and this sort of meta awareness of of a colleague and a friend that is that is no longer with us. And it was just a I don't know, just a really beautiful, affecting moment for fans, for this, you know, to see this character go, but also obviously for the show and for for Lynch, for whom, as we've talked about in the past in this podcast, has made Twin Peaks an incredibly personal document, even as he's telling this crazy story um, uh, by, by adding these meta touches, by adding all of these allusions to all of his work throughout of his his career from throughout his career from his movies to his painting kind of creating this sort of magnum opus that reflects on his own life his past his present maybe his future and that he includes these moments for a friend like this that sort of really dotes on her mortality and look i don't think you need to know any of this stuff to be really affected by these scenes they're that powerful but to kind of like have her leave the story the way that she's been played throughout this whole season through these really touching, poignant late night phone calls, this woman alone in her cabin um, with this log that she cradles, which Twin Peaks lore tells us is a, is a remnant reminder of her late dead husband who died in a fire on the day after their, their wedding, no less. And that she's been in this sort of state of mourning, but mystic connection with everything in Twin Peaks for quite a while. And now she's going to die too. And, you know, in this scene, she calls Hawk as she's called him every, uh, many times during out this season and basically says right off the bat, Hawk, I'm dying. And Hawk 
just kind of bearing this wonderful witness from afar to her, like just feeling her and being empathetic to her in his silence, but also his comments like, I'm sorry, Margaret. And they talk about death. She says, you know about death, Hawk, that it's just a change, not an end. And it just just really poignant um, stuff here. And Hawk, it's time and um, some other things in this scene too. But before we kind of dig into some of the maybe story stuff here, just, do you have any more thoughts about just sort of the emotional power of this scene? Yeah, just thought that, um, you know, one thing I think Twin Peaks does remarkably well, which might sound strange, is death. Um, you know, this is a show that kind of begins with what could seem like a, a somewhat cynical and certainly has become somewhat cynical, uh, you know, inciting incident, the death of a young girl. And weirdly, the moment that this sequence conjured up the most for me was uh, uh, Dale Cooper sort of guiding Leland Palmer into the light. This is obviously a very different moment. Uh, you know, this was someone self-guiding. And I just thought that her kind of saying, you know, my log is turning gold and the moment of her sort of setting the phone down yeah just you know really beautiful stuff and just you have to say yeah the the look on hawk's face that moment afterwards of the light kind of going off in her house really really lovely um but yeah jeff plot stuff what happened was that a reference to stuff that happened in, in in the original series what's your interpretation of her kind of final message to him I'm trying to read my chicken scratch notes here, but um, I believe what she says is something like, remember what I told you. I can't say more right now, um, but um, um, she refers to someone that remember the person that we talked about when we met face to face. Watch for that one. The one I told you about um, the one under the moon on Blue Pine Mountain. Um, now, in uh, I think that we have to understand that uh, a couple episodes ago, we saw Hawk pull out his map, and I think we he referenced a Blue Pine Mountain, and there was an I think I think it was Blue Pine Mountain that had these sort of like ominous figure hovering hovering above it, uh, and Hawk told Frank Truman. We don't ever talk about that. You don't ever want to know what that is, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, um, so yeah, your question was, is she alluding to a moment from the original Twin Peaks where they met face-to-face and they talked about someone? Well... It's possible. One uh, before we, we we started this podcast uh, uh, eight days ago. Um, <laughs> check, um, this is a long podcast. I understand that. Um, I, I I did a little bit of research in this, and there was at least one moment in the first season of Twin Peaks where Hawk did have a face to face encounter with the log lady in her home, um, in in, in her log cabin, um, perhaps on Blue Pine Mountain. I don't know. It was it was the moment where, where in the investigation into Laura Palmer, Cooper, Truman, Hawk, and Andy, um, and Doc Hayward, 
that they've all found some information regarding perhaps a cabin in the woods where Laura might have been um, assaulted or something might have happened before her body was taken to uh, the, the train car. So they go out into the woods. Um, they go for a hike. Cooper says something like, pack a lunch. Um, we're, 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 we're going for a hike. And that was sort of echoed last week when we saw them packing a lunch and going to hike in the woods. But in this scene, in, 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 in the original Twin Peaks, they go for a walk into the woods and they, they, they find a log cabin. Well, they find two log cabins. The first one is not the one they're really looking for. It's the home of Margaret. And she invites them in and she gives them tea. Um, so it's interesting that we have a tea kettle kind of like device um, in this episode too, but she ends up, she ends up telling them the story a little bit about her husband, a logger who died in a fire in the woods on the day after her, after their wedding. And then she talks about the devil and, um, she says, let me find this line. She says, my husband was a logging man. He met the devil. The devil took the form of fire. Fire is the devil hiding like a coward in the smoke. um, And I think it's Hawk or someone kind of notes the day after the wedding. Um, uh, And and maybe she says that. Um, And then Hawk says, the wood holds many spirits, doesn't it, Margaret? So... Who, when, when Margaret's on the phone with Hawk here saying, remember the one I told you about um, when we met face to face, she might be referring to the evil that lives in the woods that she associates with the devil. Um, that might take the form of that symbol on Hawk's map, but really represents death and annihilation. Um, it certainly probably represents some kind of evil. But here at this state of Twin Peaks, stage of Twin Peaks, the return, when there's just so much emphasis on mortality, the mortality of characters, but also the meta-awareness of this show's mortality, it is quickly coming to an end. Um, it is sort of fitting, perhaps, that the, that the great encounter, the great fight that waits them all here in the last act is some sort of showdown with a representative of something that they call the devil that represents evil or, or death. So um, that's, there might have been another face-to-face encounter between the Log Lady and Hawk. They might be talking about someone else. We know from previous conversations this, this year that she has impressed upon Hawk uh, the notions of good men, uh, the notion of finding Cooper, and that Laura is the one. Um, so maybe she's reminding him of, 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 of any of those figures, specifically Laura, but I'm kind of intrigued uh, uh, here in this moment that she's referring to that one scene in season one in which she refers to the, the death of her husband and, and the evil and the spirits and death that lives in the woods. Uh, I think you're right, Jeff. Um, one of the best things about that scene, it was such a beautiful, emotional moment, sort of followed up by this, you know, very kind of dark and shadowy moment inside of the police station of everyone kind of hearing about the death of the log lady at the same time. Uh, most moving for me, I think, was Sheriff Frank Truman just sort of removing his his hat. Again, a very sort of wonderfully old-fashioned moment in the context of the episode. And Jeff, 
the only scene we could have possibly gotten after the emotional, <laughs> spiritual, mythological transformation of the log lady from one life into the next. Audrey is still not quite at the roadhouse. I have I, I have nothing smart to say about this, except I absolutely love it, and I love that Sherilyn Fenn is being asked to do 20 emotions at once in all of these scenes. Did you sort of... The, the, the other thing I would say is the emotional crescendo that's building this season, boy, did it really sort of like boil over as she literally seemed to tackle the man who is her husband or her therapist or a ghost or they're doing a performance of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, did you have any other thoughts on uh, our uh, third check-in with Audrey Horn? As I kind of wrote my instant react, I think what was interesting about this moment being played here late in this episode is you have this story about people coming to threshold moments, profound threshold moments, and crossing over in literal and figurative ways, and uh, where some kind of satisfaction, some kind of fulfillment, some kind of revelation, some kind of catharsis occurs. But really, only one of those moments was truly satisfying for us as the audience, which is that the, the scene that happened in the beginning, which is with Norma and, and Ed and Nadine. And there, like, uh, the, the circuit was complete, uh, a journey was completed, and a happily ever after was achieved. But almost in every other scenario in this show, we get these moments where characters are brought to threshold realities or threshold moments, and they are frustrated in some ways, or we are frustrated in terms of not getting the answers we want or see what we want, etc. And so all of that kind of comes to this very meta moment in in the in, in Audrey's house, where they are literally on the threshold. The word threshold is even used in this scene. Like Charlie is saying, like, we're about to cross the threshold and move out of this house and move forward toward where you want to go, to your destination, the road, you know, like, let's go. But she finds a way once again to maybe sabotage the moment or he manipulates her into sabotaging the moment. They never cross that threshold. You know, we are all wondering if whether or not this scene is like this place is some sort of psychic reality, not a real place, if all of this is just sort of taking place inside uh, Audrey's head. And you wonder what is beyond that door, what is across that threshold. But no, Audrey finds a way to not take that leap and to either kind of like get cold feet or doubt herself or her existence again or blame it all on Charlie. And we have this other weird moment again where it seems to me that now we've gotten three of these scenes, Darren, and in each of these scenes, there it's all sprinkled with sort of interesting language that we could theorize about. But there's at least one moment where Charlie does something that makes you super suspicious of him as in terms of his motives or what he's really after, or even if he's a real person. There's at least one moment, and it's usually where he responds to her with some really loaded language or just silence. And in this moment, they're, sit they're standing at the door, and she basically once again accuses him of not 
being who he purports to be, that this is not my husband that I'm looking at, that, that you are not you, Charlie. And she kind of like levels this charge against him and he just kind of greets it with silence. And you kind of wonder like, is that a confirmation mm-hmm. or is it just like his way of saying, oh, you're just not this crazy talk again. <laughs> and usually what happens at... Usually what happens in this moment is is that it's played in a way, it's played both ways. You get that silence that makes you wonder, oh, it's like some kind of confirmation. And then you get the follow-up moment that's like, ah, you're just crazy, Audrey. But um, basically, Charlie gives her some kind of ultimatum that unless you put on your coat right now in one effing second, like I'm taking off my coat and we're staying here. She doesn't put on her coat. So he takes off his, he walks into another room, he sits down, and Audrey uses this moment to completely attack him and start choking him. And that's where we left off. And it's hard for any for anyone who's complaining about the pace of the season or the bait and switch of revelation or denied revelation or think that the show is trolling them or playing games. It's hard not to look at this moment and kind of like think feel like Audrey is speaking for us, choking Charlie, um, a representative maybe of of the people in charge of this show that show running her life and kind of wondering, come on, let's move forward. Why aren't you like, give me what I want. Damn it. Um, But again, like uh, I don't have that kind of impatience with the show. And I just, I didn't love this moment as much as I love the second Audrey moment, which I kind of felt like that second sequence with Audrey and Charlie completely won me over for whatever it is they're doing with Audrey. But I'm still in on her and wherever this is going and wherever this is leading. Yeah, uh, it, it's funny that you said that uh, she was for the audience in that moment. That was my exact interpretation of the final scene of the episode uh, with a Charlene Yi as a character whose name I believe is Ruby. This person waiting in the roadhouse for someone as this incredible kind of like pumping um very i thought kind of nine inch nailsy kind of rock music is playing she just sort of winds up crawling through this forest of people and screaming and i love the the cut to black on that if if there was a summation of the you know kook bat frustrations and also wonder of this episode i thought it was all right there i just i loved as a kind of moment to end on this rising crescendo of emotion and strangeness and confusion that's permeating the show right now i loved did you have any uh, smarter theories about that jeff two reactions to what you said one is uh I, i agree with that you get this sense there is just this rising tide twin peaks is in spiritual crisis and it seems to be expressed most acutely through these young people. Um, but there is some kind of like psychic storm that is moving through and disturbing reality and, and, and subverting everything. And I think it's part and parcel of the larger kind of comment that Lynch and Frost are making about America and about the spiritual condition of our world. Um, her scream kind of speaks to that. It almost seems to gather up all of these scenes at the roadhouse with all of these damaged young people and kind of like turns them into a primal scream uh, of a person who's like on her hands and knees and suffering, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, second, did you say kook bath? Kook bat. Yeah, that's that's a word. You know, it's like it's like it's like cuckoo and, and bat shit all combined into one. Kook bat. Oh, cuckoo bat. Cuckoo bat. Got it. Okay. <laughs> yes, I agree. It was cuckoo bat. <laughs> uh, everybody out there, 
Lots to say about this episode. Only three episodes and two Sundays left. Love to hear from you. Uh, love to hear all your thoughts on what we should call that tea kettle diving bell alarm system that once was Philip Jeffries. He's at EW Doc Jensen on Twitter. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. Also, email us, twinpeaks.ew.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll do a mailbag going into the last round here. And while you're at it, if you like what you're listening to, give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And uh, Jeff, you know what we have to title this, right? What do we have to title it, Darren? We are going to talk about Judy. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye, everybody.